Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray that the Lord speaks to you as you hear from His Word today. John 3.16, let's jump in. Please stand with me out of respect for the Bible. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. As you know, every sermon now, I try to give you a a one line to remember, one line that summarizes the sermon. That way, when a friend or family member asks you, what was the message about? You can have that one line in your mind to remember uh, what summarized our entire time together. Well, actually, today's one line is John 3.16. This is what I want you to remember. Uh, This is what I want you to believe, what I want you to know, what, what I want you to stake your life upon. If you're new to the faith, new to Christianity, you're new to church, this is a great place to start. I hope you'll begin in John 3.16. If you're a veteran Christian, you've been a while for a long time, I want to invite you today back to John 3.16, maybe back where you started and let God breathe fresh wind uh, into your faith. But John 3.16 is one of those verses that's impacted the entire world millions of times. I was thinking this week about how just about every football game or basketball game, somebody's holding up this sign, or you can see it draped across the stadium, John 3.16. I found out this week a little bit more about the obelisk in London. Uh, This particular obelisk is about 3,500 years old. Uh, It was given to an Egyptian pharaoh. It was transferred to England uh, in the late 1800s, and whenever they put it in uh, outside of London, They actually put a time capsule underneath it. In the time capsule were children's toys, a map of the city, some coins. But I found out this week that they put 216 different translations of John 3.16 in the time capsule uh, so that one day if posterity finds it, they would know that's what London in the late 1800s wanted to be remembered by. John 3.16 is one of those verses you can write it on a napkin. You can easily share it with a friend. This week, I read one of the best books on John 3.16, written by Max Licato. Uh, You see the book here. It's also in your outline on your notes. I would heavily encourage you to buy this book. Uh, The Bible is our message of faith. It's our word of faith and practice. But if you like devotionals to go along with your Bible like I do, you want this book. I'm actually going to begin, the last half of the book is 40 days in John 3.16. And so I'm going to be starting that tomorrow. Uh, But it was just a fresh book. I hope you'll pick it up. But again, John 3.16 has made quite the impact. So we have to ask the question, what's the big deal about John 3.16? Why should you believe it? Why should I believe it? Why is it so famous around the world? Well, I'm going to talk about that over the next few minutes, but really to, to, it's not an overstatement to say that heaven and earth depend on it. Your future depend on it. Heaven and hell depend on it. Your eternity depends on it. And so I'm going to ask you in the next few minutes to to either take notes or at least make mental notes because I'm going to give you seven quick reasons why John 3.16 is so important. Let's go ahead and jump in together. The first reason, number one, 
Why believe John 3.16? Because it reminds us salvation begins with God, not us. It reminds us salvation begins with God, not us. Notice the first couple words of John 3.16. It says, for God. Every other word in John 3.16 points back to these two words. The entire verse is about God. It reveals the character, the heart, the nature of our Lord and Savior. It's all about God. When Jesus first gave this verse, he was speaking to a religious leader by the name of Nicodemus. Nicodemus had given his life, his entire education, all of his wealth. Everything was wrapped up in teaching people about God. But this one verse rocked his world and changed his life. And many Bible scholars believe it it set him on a different course for eternity. This particular man, Nicodemus, was the one that we see later on who wasn't ashamed to take down the body of Jesus and to bury him in that borrowed tomb. Earlier in the conversation, Jesus told Nicodemus this in John chapter 3 and verse 3. He said, Very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. So in this verse again, we see the idea that salvation begins with God, not with us. Think of the way that you were born. You probably don't remember it. I don't remember it, thankfully. Uh, But maybe you've had children or, or you know somebody who's had kids. No one congratulates the baby after birth, right? No one's like, hey, high five, great job on that birth. Nobody does that. Because the baby doesn't get the gold medal. The baby gets a pacifier. Mama gets the gold medal, as many of you know, because she's the one who did all the work. And Jesus is using that as an illustration. When we come to faith in Jesus, it's not like, hey, high five, good job. You're finally smart enough to turn to Jesus. No, it's like praise be to God. Salvation always begins with God. Jonah 2.9, salvation comes from God the Lord. John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. When Jesus taught about salvation, he never said that the sheep seek the shepherd. He always taught that the shepherd seek the sheep. And so I like to summarize it this way. To be saved, you don't need muscle. To be saved, you need a miracle. To be saved, you don't need muscle. In other words, you can't earn your way to heaven. You can't do enough good. You need the work of God to open your heart to faith so that you can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Salvation always begins with God. Number two, why is it important to believe John 3.16? Because it reminds us God is motivated by love and not religion. God is motivated by love and not religion. He says, for God so loved. Nicodemus, as a religious ruler of the day, would have known that God can get angry. He would have known that God punishes. He would have known that there's a line with God. But it seemed that Nicodemus, in all of his religiosity, didn't understand the depths of the love of God. In our vocabulary, this idea of love has been quite diluted. For instance, I love my wife and I love peanut butter, but I love them to varying degrees, right? At the far end of the spectrum, I love them in a different way. 
So, but when we go back to the original languages, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the words for love are picturesque. They're beautiful. They give us this big picture of the love of God. For instance, in the Old Testament, the prominent word for love uh, referred to almost like God drawing near to us and drawing us to himself, much like some of you moms wrap your babies up in those kangaroo pouches, right? This idea of love is, is God drawing us to himself. It's a similar idea here in John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That's not sexual love. That's not romantic love. That's not even just friendship love. That is an action that brings affection. God chose to draw us near, and we feel and sense his love because of that choice. W.E. Vine writes this. Agape love is an exercise of the divine will and a deliberate choice, made without assignable cause except that which lies in the nature of God himself. This kind of love is what causes an elderly man to love his wife, to change her, to, to dress her, to feed her when they're up in years until she takes her last breath. This kind of love is what causes what I read this week about a certain gentleman who gets up every few hours at night to help his, the circulation in his son's hands and feet. During the day, he pays a therapist to massage his son's arms and legs and his hands and his feet. But at night, he literally sets his alarm every few hours to help his son maintain good circulation. What would cause somebody to do that? It's this word, it's this kind of love. What would cause the God of heaven to come and to, to, to enter the womb of a, of a Jewish girl and to be born in obscurity and live for 30 years in obscurity and eventually to be run out of town, spit on, hated, and crucified for you and for me? What would cause him to do that? And there's only one word, and that is love. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., with his birthday being tomorrow, I was reminded of his famous quote, love is the only force capable of transforming an enemy into a friend. It's the only force, which reminds us of Romans 5.8, but God demonstrates his own love for us while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Why is John 3.16 such a big deal? Because that reminds us that God is love. Number three, why else is it a big deal? Well, we see, first, third of all, salvation is offered to everyone, not just a select few. It reminds us salvation is offered to everyone, not just a select few. Notice the two words here. For God so loved the who? What's the next word? For God so loved the world, and then a few words later, it says that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting or eternal life. In that one word, whoever, in that one word, world, God rolls out the welcome mat of salvation to every man, woman, and child. In that one word, he obliterates social class. 
In that one word, he, he brings down white supremacy and rips it apart. In that one word, he, he reminds us that no matter which side of the tracks on which we were born, no matter how we were raised, what school we went to, what our past is, we are part of the whoever. Bible Center Church is made up of a bunch of whoever's and whomever's. This is an astounding statement because the Jewish leaders of the day did not write about it. They did not talk much about it because for them, God came for Israel. Now, is it true when we read the Old Testament that God had a special love for Israel? Absolutely. He had a special love for Israel then, and there's a plan for Israel somehow into eternity. But the purpose for Israel was never just for Israel. It was always to bless the nations of the world. You see, you go back to, to Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. He said, Abraham, I am going to bless you, and through you, you're going to be a blessing to all nations, to all peoples. Psalm 67, Nicodemus would have had a copy of the Psalms. Psalm 67 is all about how God wants all the nations to be glad in God. And so Jesus is reminding Nicodemus of this when he says, God so loved not just you, Nicodemus, not just people who look like you and have your color skin and act like you and think like you, but he said, God so loved the world. John 3, 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Why is John 3.16 such a big deal in the world? Because it reminds us that Christ died for the whole world. Everyone is welcome for salvation. Why else is it a big deal? There's a fifth reason. Number five. Or number four, because God is more generous than the most generous person we know. Number four, God is more generous than the most generous person we know. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. This reveals the generosity, the grace of God. He says the same thing in the next verse, verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Imagine with me for a minute that your friend is in trouble, your close friend, friend you've had for years, maybe since college or since high school. They're in trouble. And you find out that you can save your friend by putting your child's life on the line. You can literally sacrifice your child's safety so that your friend can be safe or saved. Now, don't raise your hand, but I'm asking, I wonder how many of you would actually sacrifice your child so that your friend could be safe? Listen, I love y'all, and by God's grace, I got 27 years left with you guys. I'm looking forward to that, maybe even longer. I look forward to what God's going to do in our midst. I love every one of you. It's been awesome getting to know you, but I'm not sacrificing my kids for you. I'm not, right? If it comes down to the fact of your life or one of my children's life, I'm going to pray that it goes quick and painless for you, but I'm not <laughs> going to sacrifice my kids. I remember as a kid, 
our pastor getting up and saying, how many of you would, would sacrifice your children for somebody else, one of your friends? And as a kid, I was just big enough to sit in big church, right? You know, when you're a kid, if you grew up in church, uh, you just can't wait until, man, I get sit in big church. And I remember looking up at my dad. I'll never forget this moment. Our pastor asked that question, and my dad just shook his head like, no, no. I remember that. You see, I'm not going to do it. You're not going to do it. But God did it. He is so generous. 2 Corinthians 5.21. Think about this concept. God made him who had no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, on the cross, Jesus never sinned, but he absorbed all the penalty, all the punishment for your sin and for mine. And he gave us his righteousness. This is the reason that Jesus could not be born on a Friday or a Thursday, die on a Friday, come to earth on a Thursday, die on a Friday, and raise again on Sunday and head back to heaven on Monday. He couldn't do that. Jesus had to live an entire life because according to the Old Testament, the lambs that were sacrificed had to go through a period of proving to show that they were without spot, they were without blemish. If you put that lamb upon an altar as, as they used to do in Old Testament times, it had to go through a period where it proved that it truly was the best of the best. So Jesus had to live, he lived over three decades, lived a perfect life, never sinned. He was tempted, just like you and I are tempted, but he never sinned so that on the cross he could take your punishment and give you his righteousness. Let me illustrate it this way. It's flu season. You know it's flu season, right? And, and so we're trying to remember in church, instead of saying, hey, shake hands with the person next to you, it's like, hey, say hello to the person next to you. Greet your neighbor. We're trying to use the words like greet your neighbor because, you know, some of, some, some of us, some of you, some of us, you know, we're like shaking hands and hugging and slobbering and all that. We don't really care. Uh, and then there's others that are like, you know, air bump, air fist bump. We get that. It's flu season. But let's just say your close friend has the flu. You walk into their house. His name is George. And you're like, George, hey, man, I'm so sorry you have the flu. I tell you what, I'm totally healthy. I took my vitamin C this year. I got my flu shot. I'm totally healthy. So George, I'm going to do, I'm going to give you my health, I'm going to transfer my health to you, and then you give me your flu, right? It'll just take a second, let's, let's, you know, shake hands or whatever's not weird, let's do that. All right, here we go, ready? We're going to transfer it on three, boom. I take your flu, you take my health. You say, that's crazy, nobody would ever do that. But that's what Jesus did for us. That's the message of 2 Corinthians 5.21, the generosity of God was poured out on Calvary's cross. Why is John 3.16 so important? Because it reminds us that nobody is more generous than God. Number five, why else is John 3.16 so important? Because it reminds us that Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the good news. It says he gave his one and only son. The good news is more than information. It is definitely information, but it is more than information. It's not some kind of religious drug that gets us high on spirituality. No, the good news is actually a person. Jesus is the good news. 
When it says he's, our, he's God's one and only son, the Greek word there is monogenes. It literally translates monogenes, G-E-N-E-S. And just like it sounds, it refers to something that is unique, something that is same, something that is one. And the idea of genes, it reminds us that though God is the creator of all things, Jesus alone is his monogenetic son of God. Because only Jesus has the same genes or makeup as God the Father. He shares God's spiritual DNA. Jesus shares God's essence. He shares God's eternal lifespan, his unending wisdom, and his tireless energy. God the Father is a person. God the Son is a person. God the Holy Spirit is a person. But Jesus has the literal genes of his Father. That's what it means by the only begotten or the one and only Son. So in other words, you say, I wonder what God's like. What is God really like? All we've got to do is read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see how Jesus interacted with the world. And that is what God is like. This isn't part of the sermon, but it may actually surprise you. I remember when I was trying to figure out what God is like and and where I fit in the world and where Christianity fit in the world, one of my mentors encouraged me just to read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John over and over again. And he said, write down every time Jesus does something that surprises you. And he did a lot to surprise me. You want to know what God's like? Look at Jesus. He may not be like the religion that you think he represents. Jesus is full of grace. He is holiness. He is truth and grace embodied in one. John 14, 9 and 10 says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Think about his claims on the world. In that same chapter, he says in verse 1 of John 14, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also may be where I am. I've never been to Bolivia, but imagine for a minute that I stand on this platform and I want to tell you all about Bolivia. Here's a picture of Bolivia. I tell you, hey, this is what it's, the food is like, this is what the climate's like, this is what the people are like. I've never been there. But, you know, I've gone to that reliable webpage, Wikipedia, that never gets anything wrong. And I give you all kinds of facts about Bolivia. You might say, hey, he knows something what he's talking about. But it's nothing compared to somebody who's been there. We have a global partner, a missionary that we support in our church. He spends part of his time, he and his wife, Susie, Jack and Susie, spend part of their time in Bolivia and part of their time here in the States. And if you want to know about Bolivia, talk to Jack and Susie. They'll get up and they'll tell you all about it. And I guarantee it, you'll trust them because they've been there. And so when Jesus says, in my father's house are many rooms or also translated mansions, you say, how can I know that's true? You can trust him because he's been there. And Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the father but through me. Let's throw that up on the screen. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
in our era of political correctness, I think we should be courteous and kind and not purposely just try to punch people in the face with our words. But in this era of political correctness, it's almost what well, it is. It's, it's wrong, it seems, in the world for us to declare that there's only one way to heaven. But I didn't declare it. You didn't declare it. Jesus declared it. He said, I am not come to show you the way. I am come to be the way. Islam says that Jesus was not crucified. Christians say he was. Both can't be right. Judaism refuses the claim of Christ as the Messiah. Christianity accepts it. Both can't be right. Buddhists look towards nirvana, achieve no less than after 547 reincarnations. Google it. But Christians believe in one life, one death, and an eternity of enjoying God. Both cannot be right. The people who spent all their time with Jesus, like Peter, James, and John, in Acts chapter 4, when they cornered Peter, James, and John and said, what do you believe? They said, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven whereby people must be saved. Jesus is the good news. He's what salvation is all about. We're in the middle of this doctrinal series where we're trying to summarize the gospel in 10 words. We say that God creates, sin breaks. This today is Jesus saves. Next week is Jesus transforms. And then two weeks after that, God restores. So if you said, what's the gospel in 10 words? That's the gospel. It's in your bulletin this morning. But if you said, what's the gospel in one word? It would be Jesus. Jesus is the good news. Number six, why is John 3.16 so important? Why should you believe it? Well, number six, it reminds us that we're going to live somewhere forever. We'll live somewhere forever. He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus doesn't delete the word perish, but he pounds, he hammers, do not enter signs on every square inch of hell. And he tells everybody who's hell-bent on going there that in order to go there, they must stumble over his crucified body and stumble over John 3.16. Did Jesus ever talk about hell? He actually talked about hell more than he talked about heaven. 13% of every story that Jesus ever told, 13% were about hell. Two-thirds of what Jesus preached talked about judgment day, how there's coming a judgment day on that great day. You and I will take one day our last breath. Jesus wasn't cruel, but he did tell the truth, and he was blunt. Sometimes I get asked, how could a loving God ever send somebody to hell? That is a great question. If somebody asks you that, show them Ezekiel 33.11. Ezekiel 33.11 says, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. God put John 3.16 in the Bible because he doesn't want anybody to go there. That's a beautiful truth. Now this week, I'm going to ask you to go on a little journey with me. We're almost done. Go on a little mental journey with me. And, and, and this week, 
studying this aspect of hell, I came across something I don't recall ever hearing or studying. If I heard it, it went through one ear and out the other. And that is this idea. Could it be that nobody who goes to hell will ever again want to go to heaven? I'm asking that as a question. Could it be that nobody who goes to hell will ever want to go to heaven? You see, I've preached that in the past. I've said, hey, you know what? If you miss salvation for eternity, you're going to wish that you were with God. You're going to wish that you were in heaven. I'm just asking you to think through this with me for a minute because I'm not sure that's what the Bible teaches. Now, I'm asking you to search the scriptures daily with me, but go on a journey with me. In Luke 19, 14, Jesus talks about a group of people that rejected him. They ultimately rejected him, and this is what they said. We don't want this man to be our king. In Revelation 16, 9, Jesus gives us a glimpse of the future. And he talks about this people. It says in Revelation 16, 9, they were seared by the intense heat, and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. Revelation 22, 11. It's talking about once eternity begins, once your death is sealed, listen to this, let the one who does wrong continue to do wrong. Let the vile person continue to be vile. And let the one who does right continue to do right. And let the holy person continue to be holy. When you think about the story in Luke 16, the parable Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus, I used to teach this, and I've read the story, I've heard a million sermons on it. I used to say that in hell, the rich man looked up and asked Abraham to bring him up to heaven to be with God. I don't know where I got that idea. So literally this week, right? I've been through a few years of, of seminary, a few years of studying the Bible. I'm going back and I'm reading and rereading Luke 16 and go, I've been wrong. That's not what Luke 16 says. In Luke 16, the man in hell never asked to get out and be with God, ever. He simply asked for relief, temporary relief from his pain. Here's the thought. C.S. Lewis said it this way. Summarizing this thought, he says, I willingly believe that the condemned are, in one sense, successful rebels to the end, that the doors of hell are locked on the inside. Here's the truth. Nobody goes to hell who does not want to be there. Nobody misses heaven who does not want to be there. So if you say, how could God be fair, Matt? How could God be so fair? You're telling me that, that Jesus died on the cross for my sins, but I'm not sure if I'm ready yet. If I choose not to believe it, how could God be fair sending me to hell? The answer is you've had your chance. You've heard the gospel. What more do you want? You say, well, I thought every knee's going to bow and every tongue's going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But the text never says that they do it by their own free will. Here's what could be saying. If you die without Jesus Christ, not only do you not get another chance, but you're never going to want another chance because your fate and your hard heart is sealed for eternity. Now, I don't want that to happen. That's why in two weeks I'm going to preach all about heaven. 
But today, that's why I'm preaching John 3.16. Because you're going to live somewhere forever. And I want it to be with Jesus. What else does John 3.16 teach us? This we can be sure about. Verse 7. Or excuse me, number 7. The gospel requires us to make a decision. The gospel requires us to make a decision. He says, whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. The message isn't believe in yourself. Try harder, dig deeper. The message isn't that. The message isn't keep the Ten Commandments. Endure multiple reincarnations as you journey through the Hindu cosmos. The message isn't follow the four noble truths and the noble eightfold path of Buddhism. The message is not earn favor with Allah by performing the duties of the five pillars of faith. The message isn't join the church. The message is John 3.16. For he says God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. I read this week of a missionary, John Patton, John G. Patton of the New Hebrides Islands, just east of Australia. John Patton spent years trying to translate the Bible into their native tongue. There was a word that they didn't have in their language, and it was the word faith or believe. And so it really bothered John Patton as he's trying to. It's the word believe is all throughout the New Testament. And so he struggled for years trying to find the right word for their translation. He would go on hunting trips with the men in the village. And one day as they were out on a hunting trip, they bagged the big deer. And they were giving the missionary a hard time for not being strong enough to carry the deer back on their own. And so the two men carried the the deer back for him. And whenever they finally got to his house on the veranda, they, they laid down the deer, they had it up on a pole, they laid down the deer, and they said in their language, finally... We can stretch out and rest. And they were talking about the hammock. We can stretch out and rest on the hammock. On that hunting trip, John G. Patton figured out the word in their language for John 3.16. And so if you would take what he translated and transliterate it into English, it would read like this. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever stretches out on him and rests will not perish, but have everlasting life. This is what I'm begging you to do today. I am begging you to stretch out and rest on Jesus. To trust for the first time in your life the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, as your Lord. To commit your life to Christ. You say, Pastor Matt, why is this so important? It's important because of the seven reasons I just mentioned. You have no guarantee of another breath. And you will live somewhere forever. So that's why the Apostle Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's important. It could look a number of different ways for you. It could be right now as I'm preaching, the Spirit of God has already opened your heart to faith. And right now, you can't explain it, but you know you believe it. I've seen that happen. It could be that you're online and you're, you're watching or, or you're listening and you're like my first boss. My first boss when I was 14 or 15 told the story how he heard the, on the radio. He refused to go to church with his wife, but he listened on the radio. 
and he was eating breakfast at home while his wife took herself and her kids to church. He heard the gospel, and right beside his bed, he knelt down and prayed and trusted Jesus Christ. In his own words, Lord, save me. And that man is still going forward in faith for Jesus today. It could be that you stop by the prayer room. We have the prayer room that's going to open in just a minute after the service. You stop by the prayer room. Someone could pray with you and you could commit your life to Christ. There's no magic words. Maybe right now you say, Pastor Matt, I believe. I can't explain it. I believe. What's the next step in the Bible? You know, in the Bible, there were no altar calls. There were no come forwards. You know what the next step was in the Bible? It was baptism. It was baptism. And the apostles would say, who wants to be baptized? If you've believed, your next step is to be baptized. And they would say, Let's, there's water. Let's go get baptized. Well, we're not going to do that today. Definitely, we're not going to do that outside. But tonight, we have a baptism meeting at 6 o'clock. I'm leading it. Just show up to the baptism meeting and say, Pastor Matt, I want to be baptized. I'll tell you what it's about. I'll give you the information you need. I'll pray with you. You can be baptized on February 3rd. You can go public with your faith right away. Some, some people, when they think about salvation, we'll close with this. Think of this picture. Look at this marathon runners. This is actually actual footage of our deacons, Mark Banier, Phil Sword, and me running in the marathon uh, in the Olympics. I don't know why you laughed. Some of you laughed. It's actually not us. Uh, but those are Olympic marathon runners and there are some who teach that salvation is kind of like this. If you do good enough, and you strive hard enough, and you put in the work, eventually you'll cross the finish line to heaven, and you'll get there because you earned it. The problem is the Bible never teaches that. That's not the picture of salvation. This is actually the picture, a better marathon picture of what it's like to get to heaven. Let me introduce you to Dick and Rick Hoyt. Dick is the father. Rick is the son. When Rick was born, he was born with a debilitating disease that, that prevented him from walking and talking. At the age of 11, his parents came across a, a, a computer. They were helped to get something that would actually allow him to, to learn his alphabet and learn to speak through computer. And so he was, they found he's a brilliant kid, but he couldn't run and he couldn't walk. At age 15, he begged his dad. Rick begged his dad, Dick, and says, I want to run, us together, to run in a marathon. Well, Dick wasn't a runner. He didn't know how it was going to happen. And so he took him out for a little charity 5K and thought, I can never go farther than 5K. But while his son did his studies during the day, on his lunch break, sometimes in the evenings, Dick, the father, would put concrete bags in his son's wheelchair, and he would practice running to build up his leg strength. Since 1965, Dick and Rick have crossed the finish line 1,000 times. They've run 72 marathons, including Boston, 32 times. They've done 97 half marathons, 257 triathlons, seven triathlons at Ironman distance, 176 5Ks, and they've crossed the United States in 45 days. Now, the picture of salvation is what I mean by that is this. Rick, the son, contributes nothing to those marathons but a willing heart and showing up. Every marathon or triathlon is Father Dick lifts him into his wheelchair, lifts him into his boat, or whenever they uh, do the bike, they have a big basket. He, the father lifts his son into the basket. All he contributes is a willing heart 
and salvation, you can't earn it. You're not strong enough to make it. But this morning, your heavenly Father wants to lift you out of your hopelessness, your sinfulness, out of your despair and brokenness, and place you in the kingdom of His dear Son. For God so loved the world that He gave His only one and only Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Father, thank You for what You're doing in hearts right now. And I ask that there would be some in this service who put their faith in you. With heads bowed and eyes closed, as the band begins to play, I'm going to invite you right where you sit to put your faith in Jesus. You can pray your own words. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need salvation. Forgive me. Come into my life. Make me a Christian. Pray in your own words in your heart. But during this time, if you want to talk to somebody, you want to pray with somebody, our prayer room is going to open up momentarily. Back on my left, on your right, you can go pray with somebody. It might look like you just simply right now in your heart, you know you believe. You know that. And tonight you show up at 6 o'clock for the baptism class. Whatever that is, I'm praying that you will put your faith in Jesus if you haven't already. As the band begins to play, use this time. Talk to the Lord. Meditate on what he wants you to do as your next step. And remember, it's all about Jesus. Once again, thank you for joining us this week. We look forward to serving you in next week's podcast, along with our weekend services every Sunday morning at 9 and 11 a.m.